I don't know if you have given a whole lot of thought to what's going on in our world today. It can be quite depressing to think about that a lot, but people today are often consumed by something. Have you noticed? What, what is it that they're pursuing? If you ask people, what is your number one pursuit in life? A lot of people would say, happiness. I want to be happy. I want love and joy and peace and happiness. And you go to the bookstores, and what do you find? You find heaps of self-help books. 101 ways to do you know, whatever it is, right? It, you find these books. You, people pay a lot of money to go to hear motivational speakers that uh, just tickle their felt needs. And you read the newspaper, and there's all kinds of advice columnists out there who claim to offer the key to happiness. But for many people, do they ever really find it? Sadly, a lot of people don't, do they? The door remains shut as far as that is concerned. And un- unable to control their circumstances, they find themselves instead controlled by their circumstances. Can you control your circumstances? No, not really. Not ultimately. And so what happens if, if, you, if you want to control your circumstances and you can't and, 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 and people find out when their job or some relationship or even church fails you, fails to make you happy, what, what do they do? If your job or a relationship in church can't make you happy, they end up dumping it. And they look for a new one, hoping to find that elusive happiness. And so having fruitlessly pursued happiness, they end up arriving to the same conclusion that the book of Ecclesiastes says, all is vanity. It's emptiness. It's, it's worthless if, if, it, if you're leaving God out of the picture. But if happiness is elusive, what we find in the book of Philippians is that joy is not elusive. Joy is not elusive because joy is not based on your circumstances. And you say, well, what is joy? Well, biblical joy is something, first of all, you need to understand that is available to all people who obey God. It's available to all Christians. So here's a definition that I like of joy on the screen here for you. Joy is an internal attitude. Notice the word internal. It's not external. It's not based on your your circumstances of life. So it's an internal attitude of gladness and gratitude which comes not from circumstances, but from knowing and doing God's will. End quote. That's from Dennis Mock in his New Testament survey book. So let's just be clear here. Joy is something that is a settled conviction that God is in control, that God sovereignly controls the events of life for believers, and really anybody, but but what is he doing? He he is doing it for our good and his glory. That's why he does everything. It's for your good and his glory. And so that divine joy, or or uh, gladness, if you will, is the theme of the book of Philippians. I don't know exactly how many times you're going to find these words, but as we read, just notice the words joy, rejoice, and glad. They're found many, many times in each chapter. 
So, primarily, we, we find joy in Jesus Christ. And that's where the Apostle Paul found his joy. He certainly didn't find it in his circumstances. And, and so that's amazing that divine joy in Christ would be the theme of this book, because you remember who's writing this book? Who is the human author of this book? Of course, it was the Apostle Paul. And, and remember who the recipients of this letter are. So both the human author as well as the recipients didn't have the circumstances to go along with happiness. It was bad circumstances. So Philippians is a letter that is written to suffering Christians in the city of Philippi. And, 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 and all the while, keep in mind, Paul is sitting in prison in Rome. You say, well, where is Philippi? Well, Philippi was started by Paul on one of his missionary journeys. It's actually in modern-day uh, country of Greece. You'll see it up there. Uh, it's, it's circled for you on the screen there. So, uh, so the northern part of the Mediterranean Sea there. Anyway, when did Paul write this book? Well, we're not exactly for sure, but... Uh, most Bible scholars would say it's it's either the year 61 or the year 62. So not too we're not, we're not talking too long after the time of Christ here, after he was on this earth. And we're talking about a city that is in modern day Europe. So as I said, the theme of this book is about all all of our joy finding it in the Lord, and so all the points are going to have to do coming from each chapter will have something to do with joy. How can you have joy, despite life circumstances being contrary to that? Well, in chapter 1, we will, we will see here that joy comes from focusing on the gospel. Joy comes from focusing on the gospel. That's exactly what we're going to see the Apostle Paul doing here. And of course, by gospel, we mean the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of Jesus Christ that he came and he was the perfect sacrifice. He lived the perfect life, died the perfect death, taking our place on the cross. But he didn't stay dead. He arose again, just as the Scripture said he would. And so he paid the penalty for sin. And that's how we see love and mercy meeting together in Jesus there on the cross. So joy comes from focusing on the gospel. And we're going to kind of break this chapter up into a couple different parts and think about it this way. Paul does this in, in chapter 1. He he focuses on, first of all, the fellowship of the gospel. He focuses on the fellowship of the gospel. He even uses this, this idea of fellowship or partnership. Even in verse 5, you see the word partnership in the gospel. And so this, this word partnership or fellowship means to have in common. What did they have in common? Well, all Christians have something in common. But for, for true Christian fellowship, it's it's really something that's much deeper than just getting together and sharing a coffee or having cake together or or even by the way even playing some sports together. Some people think they fellowship when they've when they've played eighteen holes of golf. Well, maybe it could foster fellowship, but doesn't necessarily mean that you have had something in common in the Lord. Too often we think fellowship is just really friendship. You can't have fellowship without with someone unless you have something in common with that person. 
And so unless a person's trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior, he knows nothing of the partnership or fellowship of the gospel. But look, these people had something in common with each other. Paul and these Philippian believers had something in common. So let's read about this. Philippians 1, we'll start in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Why? Well, look at verse 5. Because because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. Few are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God." I hope you find it somewhat remarkable. I, I, I find it remarkable that Paul is thinking of others and not of himself. It's not really the natural thing to do if you're sitting in prison. Uh, and so here he is. He's awaiting his trial. He's in Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. And Paul's mind is going back to the believers in Philippi. He's recollecting these thoughts and these thoughts of these people and his times with them are bringing him joy. When you read the book of Acts, you discover that some bad things happened to Paul at Philippi. It wasn't all good news. It wasn't all happy times, if you will. The memory could have produced sorrow for Paul. Let's just think about some of the things in case you're not familiar with. Uh, I think it's Acts chapter 16. Is is You can read about that, but... Paul was illegally arrested, and he was beaten. He was placed in stocks. He was humiliated before people. But even those memories brought joy to Paul because it was through that suffering, you remember, that he was put in prison, and that he was able to meet that Philippian jailer, and the Philippian jailer and his family came to Christ. Paul recalled meeting Lydia and her household. Paul remembered this poor slave girl who was demon-possessed. He also remembered the dear Christians at Philippi. And each of those memories, Paul says, brought him joy, this inner sense of calm and peace and happiness. So let me ask you this, my friends. Do you bring joy to your pastor? You bring joy to your pastor, to the people whom you know? When they think about you, do you bring, does the thought of you bring joy to their minds as these people did for Paul? 
One of my favorite verses is found here in this chapter. Chapter 1, verse 6 is a wonderful verse because it says, I, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Why is that a wonderful verse? Because that truth brings joy. Nothing encourages me more than the knowledge that despite my circumstances and the uncertainties and despite the difficulties of life, one day I will be made perfect. God is perfecting me even now. God's perfecting you if you're a believer. The word sure, by the way, it means to be persuaded of, to have confidence in. Hard for a lot of people to have confidence in anything, but here's something you can. That God is doing a work in you, if you're a believer. And Paul's confidence was much more than, by the way, just some human hope where I, I hope this is going to happen. It was an absolute confidence that comes from knowing and believing God's promise. This is God's promise. So the question is, what do you believe about God here? Do you believe that God is a God who makes promises and He always fulfills His promises? I hope you do. And so my friend, salvation is holy. God's work here. And it's for that reason, its completion is something that is certain. It is already accomplished as far as God is concerned. And it's in that truth that we can rejoice, just as Paul did. Now, before we read the next section, we need to understand something about the Apostle Paul. His desire as a missionary was to preach the gospel in Rome. You, you read his letters. He says it in several different times in his letters. I want to go to Rome and preach the gospel. Why did he want to do that? Because Rome was the hub of this empire, this great empire. Rome was the key city of its day. And so if Paul could conquer Rome for Christ, it would mean reaching millions of people with the message of salvation. That was his consuming passion. And so he wanted to go to Rome as a preacher, but is that what God's will for him was? Well, he did get to preach, but maybe not in the way that you and I might think of. He ended up going as a prisoner of Christ. And in the process, he did get to do some preaching and teaching. So some would say, oh, Paul, you failed. What a failure you are. Well, really? Is that true? To many, it looked like failure, but not to Paul. That's not how he thought of it. He didn't find his joy in ideal circumstances. He found his joy in Christ and the gospel. And again, we see Paul here, he's going to focus on the progress of the gospel despite his chains, despite the fact he's a prisoner of Christ here, he, he still is encouraged. He's rejoicing in what God is doing. And by the way, how did the gospel advance? It advanced through adversity. And by the way, you'll notice if you know anything about church history, that's how usually the gospel advances, is through adversity. We see in verses 12 through 18 here that adversity advances the gospel. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, <clears throat> that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. 
so that it has become known through the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. We'll just pause there for a moment. I found a, an interesting quote from someone, and, it all, and it's interesting. This quote all starts with the letter P, very creative. But somebody has said that proper perspective produces praise. Proper perspective produces praise. Do you notice Paul has the right perspective here? He is resting and trusting in God's sovereignty. The one who is in control is reigning supreme over all of his circumstances. Paul wanted to go to Rome as a preacher. But it was God's will that Paul go to Rome as a prisoner. And isn't it interesting that he said even, even people in Caesar's household were becoming Christians. And people were encouraged and, and, and emboldened by his example. So the proper perspective produces praise. He's able to rejoice because he has the right perspective. So not only does adversity advance the gospel, number two, we see here that adversity exalts and honors Christ. It exalts and honors Christ. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. It's a beautiful passage, isn't it? In Christ... Life or death is a win-win situation, is it not? It doesn't matter if God chooses to take you home to be with Himself or He chooses to leave you here on earth. Either way, when you are in Christ, it is a win-win situation. And so when we're ready to die, I think that's when it's we, we've, we've finally come to the point that we're, we are actually ready to live. If somebody's not ready to die, they're not really living for Christ. No wonder Paul had joy. It didn't matter to him if he died or he lived. All he wanted to do was to magnify Christ. 
He wanted the world to see how big Christ really is. That's what a magnifying glass does, right? It doesn't make something bigger. It just helps you to see something. And that's what Paul wanted to do with Christ. He wanted people to see Christ in him. I love verse 21. Verse 21 is a test. Verse 21 is your test. It's a test that every one of us has to take. So here's how you... I've put it up on the screen this way for you to think about, okay? You fill in the blanks, all right? Uh, For the moment, just never mind what the Scripture actually says in verse 21. Because the reality is, at times in our life, we don't actually believe what Paul says in verse 21. And the reason we don't believe that is because it's how we live. Right? How we live shows what we really believe. So you fill in the blanks. For me to live is blank, and to die is blank. So what you fill in that blank will determine how you live. Well, for, for some people, they would fill in, here's what they might say, for me to live is money, <laughs> right? A lot of people live for money. But what happens if you live for money? You leave it all behind. For some people, it's for me to live as fame. And what happens? We all die and we're forgotten. For some people, it's all about power. For me to live is power. I want to, I want power. You know what? You die and you lose it all, don't you? If that's what it's all about. As Jesus said, you can gain the whole world. And lose your soul. What does it profit you? It profits you nothing. So I hope you can pass the test. And you can agree with what the scripture says there. That for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. My friend, let me ask you this. How do you view the Christian life? Some people view the Christian life as a playground. It's time for my happiness. It's a time to just play, right? But for others, life is a battleground. For Paul, it was a battleground. For Jesus, it was a battleground. For the apostles, it was life, the Christian life was a battleground. It wasn't a playground. My friends, we need to take life seriously. Does that mean you can't have, you can't be happy? Of course not. Fruit of the Spirit includes love, joy, and peace. Paul goes on to focus here on guarding the faith of the gospel. He wanted to guard the faith of the gospel. For him, it was a battleground. The Christian life was a battleground. It was not a playground. Look what he says here in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul's still in prison. His circumstances haven't changed. But Paul was focused on guarding the faith of the gospel. 
And there's three essentials for victory in the battle to protect the faith. The first essential for victory here that Paul mentions is a godly life. A godly life is very, very important. In verse 27, he says, Hey, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, don't don't let your life preach a different gospel. I found a poem from some unknown source. Here's what it says. It's on the screen for you. You are writing a gospel. Sorry, there it is. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithful or true. Just what is the gospel according to you? My friend, do you see that? Your life speaks. And often our, our life speaks louder than our talk talks, right? Your walk talks and your law, your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks, right? You've heard that before, I'm sure. That's true. Your go- a godly life speaks volumes to people. Very important that you, your life guard the faith of the gospel. But the second essential for victory in this battle to protect the faith is teamwork. You can't do it on your own because look what he says at the end of verse 27. End of verse 27, he says, So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You don't do it alone. You do it side by side with other Christians. Boy, I'll use a a sports illustration to get the point across here. Okay, If you've ever played sports, and if you've ever uh, had a, been on a sports team and had to play with other players, it's vitally important that a team work together. But it's very frustrating if you're ever on a, some sports team and you find somebody who, who, is a, who is a ball hog or a glory hound, you know, the, the, the person who wants all the glory, right? You ever played with one of those? Yeah, they, they're, if, if, you know, for example, in basketball, oh, it's frustrating. I've done this before. You play basketball, and some, there's, there's some guy who, who doesn't want to pass you the ball. He's doing all the, the dribbling. He's the one doing all the shooting. He's the one who wants to get all the points for the entire team. Very frustrating. Somebody wants to be in the spotlight, get all the praise, the pats on the back, and say, you're awesome, you're number one. And usually that person makes it very, very difficult for the rest of the team. They aren't working equally together, but are working to make one person look good. <laughs> very frustrating. Doesn't make for a very good team, does it? And it is that particular attitude that makes for defeat. Unfortunately, we can have some, even, even these kind of people, these glory hounds, these ball hogs in the church sometimes. People who want to take all the glory. But let's think of the local church as a team of athletes, if you will. Each person has been assigned a place Each person's been assigned a job by the head of the church. Each of us, if we're doing our jobs, is going to help the entire team, right? The team has to follow the rules. The team has the Word of God as as the rule book, if you will. And there's one goal. That goal is to honor Jesus Christ, the head of the church, to do God's will. And if we're all working together, then guess what's going to happen? You're going to reach the goal, the prize will be won, and 
God will be glorified. But sometimes there's people in the church who want the glory. They don't want to follow the rule book. They're the ones who want to be glorified to be glorified instead of Jesus. That doesn't work. So the second essential for victory is teamwork. The third essential for victory is confidence. Confidence. Paul was confident. He was very confident. So as we face the enemy and and we depend on the Lord, he's going to give us all that we need for this battle. What was, by the way, what was Paul confident in? What was he confident in? In verse 28, he says, uh, and and he, he goes on to say, and not frightened at anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And he goes on to talk, hey, it's been granted to you. Something's been granted to you. You can have confidence in this. For the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Wow. That's an interesting perspective on life. When you believe in God's sovereignty, it makes all the difference. Paul was confident in that. Well, as you face your enemies and you depend on the Lord, he, God's going to give us all we need for this battle in life. God is going to give us everything we need for this battle. And so when the enemy sees our God-given confidence, it's going to make him fear. This world and Satan, your flesh, is not going to like that. So we have joy despite circumstances. Let's move on to number two. Chapter number two teaches us that joy comes from humility. Joy comes from humility, not from pride. A proud person is not going to have joy. And there's several examples throughout this chapter. We're not going to take a lot of time to talk about these. I'm just going to basically let the Scriptures show you this for themselves. But look at the humility toward other people that Paul talks about here in the first couple verses. What does humility look like? Because it says that God calls us to humbly love and serve other people. What does that look like? Look at verse chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, which there is, any comfort, which there is, any participation in the Spirit, which there is, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. But each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So it's, this is not a proud person here. This is, this is someone who's humble, continually looking out for other people's interest, not just self-focused. Well, we see this lived out in Christ's life. Christ showed humility toward others. He wasn't just focused on himself. And he's, he's the prime example here in Philippians. So look at verse 5. Verse 5, we see that Christ was humble. And Paul says, To have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Well, what is this attitude that Christ had? It was an attitude of humility. And it, and it was lived out in his life in verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ was humble. How do we see that? Well, verses 5 and 6, he, he thought of others, not himself. In verse 7, he served. In verse 8, he sacrificed himself. And then in verses 9 to 11, he glorified his Father in heaven. He glorified God. That was his whole purpose. His whole mission ultimately was to glorify God. So Christ is the ultimate example of humility. We see that, yes, he humbled himself, but Christ found joy in humility. Paul also found joy in humility. Look what it says about Paul, starting in verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain." even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul goes on to talk about Timothy as well. Timothy was a a humble young man. Look what Paul says about him starting in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. And then Paul ends by talking about another humble man, a man who had other people's interest at heart, and his name was Epaphroditus. And Paul talks about him in verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. 
So we see this chapter, a lot of humility. There's a lack of pride going on here. There was this emphasis upon other people, other people's interests, serving other people. So joy comes through humility. Then in chapter 3, we see joy comes from knowing Christ. It comes from knowing Christ. You're not going to find joy in, in, in other relationships other than Christ. That's what chapter 3 is about. So we see Paul, he's going to warn about false teachers here. And these false teachers, what they were doing is they were mixing law and grace. They were often called Judaizers. These Judaizers were mixing the Old Testament law with grace. By the way, there is grace in the Old Testament as well, but they, they, they didn't understand this. And so Paul uses three terms to describe them in verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 2, there's three terms he uses to describe these Judaizers who are mixing law and grace, and he, he calls them dogs. By the way, that's not a term of endearment. They, they, these are scavengers. These aren't pets. These are the obnoxious scavengers. And he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. These are three terms to describe these false teachers. Paul goes on to tell us that knowing Christ exposes false teachers. There's great value in knowing what is the truth because it reveals what's evil, what's false. Look what he says in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So in contrast to the false teachers, here's three points, three interesting points. Paul says in verse 3, three points. He says that true Christians, number one, worship God in spirit. Well, that sounds a lot like John 4, 24. Jesus says if you want to worship the Father, you must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So these are people who worship God in spirit. And number two, what are they boasting in? They boast in Jesus. And number three, they have no confidence in this flesh. Flesh is that, that sin nature, the old man for a believer, the old self, or to have no confidence in it because the Bible doesn't speak anything good about your flesh. <laughs> there is nothing good about your flesh. That old man, that old self, the sin nature. So true Christians worship God in spirit. They're boasting in Jesus, have no confidence in the flesh. And so... As we move on, Paul's going to come on to this very interesting autobiographical section, if you will. And he's examining his own life. Paul came to realize that these things he thought were so important, these things that uh, he, he was relying upon, was actually making him spiritually bankrupt. Look what Paul says. because He says that knowing Christ exposes our, our human pride, starting in verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So he lists these, these things where he could boast in his flesh, and he says in verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of, of, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Wow. 
Verse 7 starts with a contrast. Because he says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Wow, do you see Paul's goal? He wanted to know Christ. And and as he saw Christ, he got to know Christ. Christ exposed his pride. Christ exposed his spiritual bankruptcy. Hmm. We need our spiritual bankruptcy to be exposed. We need to see Christ. We need to know Christ. And I hope all of us want to be winning Christians. So what are the essentials then for winning this race of life, receiving the reward? Well, we're going to find the answer in the next section here. You want to be a winner? Look what Paul says, because he says that knowing Christ expresses godly motivation. Look at verse 12. Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Stop there for a moment. You see how knowing Christ expresses godly motivation in those verses? Let me just point a few things out to you. Number one, Paul was not satisfied with his Christian life. Paul realized he had not come to glorification, to total Christ-likeness. He had this holy dissatisfaction that he, he understood he was the worst sinner he knew. That he had a lot to go. As he looked to Christ, he realized, well, you know, the more you get to know Christ, the, 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 the more you realize how far you are really from Him. You get a lot farther to go than you think. Number two, Paul was totally devoted to one thing. He was devoted to this Christian race he, he wanted to specialize in something. He didn't want to be one of those jack-of-all-trades, master of none. He, several times there he says, one thing. I'm focused on one thing. I'm focused on Christ. I'm focused on the gospel. I'm focused on winning this race. And number three, Paul was looking toward the future, not the past. Very easy to look at our past. And, and when we do that, by the way, that can, that can cause you to lose your joy. It could cause you to stumble in the race. Just as a runner, any good runner doesn't look you know, behind them and what's going on around them. They're, any good runner's focused on that finish line. 
They're totally focused on that one thing and running as fast as they can toward that one goal. Paul was looking toward the future, not the past. Looking at the finish line. Four, Paul was determined to win. He was determined to win. By God's grace, nothing was going to stop him. He was going to keep going as hard as he could, as fast as he could, until, until God took him home. But we also see Paul obeyed the rules. It doesn't mean that you, 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 you do whatever you possibly can in breaking rules to get across that finish line. No. Paul realized there was rules that had to be obeyed lest he would be disqualified. Let me ask you this. How do you know if you are a citizen of heaven? How do you know if you're a citizen of heaven? Well, Paul's going to answer that quite well, I think, in these next few verses. We see that knowing Christ transforms earthly minds to heavenly minds. The problem is we're too earthly in our thinking a lot of times. We need to be transformed. So look what Paul says in verse 17. Verse 17, chapter 3, verse 17. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Wow. Verse 19 says, Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Wow. Christ transforms our earthly minds to heavenly minds. There's there's a few important things I just want to highlight in the text. My friend, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation and for the forgiveness of your sins, then you are a citizen of heaven. This world is not your home. You're just passing through it. You are an ambassador for Jesus Christ while you live here. And so Paul says the citizens of heaven have their names recorded in the book of life. You have a record in heaven of your citizenship. And Paul talks of, even mentions that in chapter 4, verse 3. Because he talks about these people at the end of verse 3 whose names are in the book of life. Did you know God has a record of your name if you are a believer? Number two, citizens of heaven understand spiritual things and they enjoy talking about spiritual things. Number three, citizens of heaven obey God's laws. And a fourth thing we can see in chapter 3, verse 20, is that citizens of heaven look for their king. They have their eyes and their heart looking for their king. That's where their heart is. And when your heart's there, your eyes are there as well. And of course, this king is King Jesus. These people are looking for King Jesus because verse 20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we move on to chapter 4, we learn that joy comes from God's protection. The reality is you can't protect yourself. You cannot ultimately protect yourself. And by the way, that doesn't mean be foolish. 
But that doesn't mean be foolish. That doesn't mean, you know, don't take medicine and don't look after your body and don't sleep and don't eat. And that, that's foolishness. Don't do that sort of thing. But as we go about life, ultimately recognize your faith is not in a doctor. Your faith is not in medicine. Your faith is not in the food. Your faith is not in yourself. Your faith is in God. That's where joy comes from, from God ultimately. God is the one who's protecting him. Well, if anybody had an excuse for worry, <laughs> it would have been Paul. It would have been the Apostle Paul. His Christian friends at Philippi were disagreeing with one another. He talks about some of them here even in chapter 4, verse 2. Look at them. He mentions some of his friends who were disagreeing. Paul might be a... He, he could have been discouraged by this. He probably was. Because he says in chapter 4, verse 2, I entreat Euodia... And I entreat Sintuki to agree in the Lord. So whatever Yodi and Sintuki were arguing about was bringing division in the church. <laughs> so along with that potential division at Philippi, Paul also had to face division in the church in Rome. He talks about that in chapter 1. And so Paul had these burdens upon himself as if being in prison wasn't bad enough. He's hearing all these various things that are going on in these churches. So added to these burdens was the possibility of his own death. Yes, Paul had a good excuse to worry. But did he worry? No, he didn't worry. Instead, what he did is he took time to explain how to have victory over worry. And some of you might say, well, what really is worry? What really is worry? Well, the word worry or anxious, you might see that word as well there. In, for example, in Philippians 4, verse 6, you might see the word uh, in verse 6. It says, do not be anxious about anything. Some of your Bibles might say worry. Uh, that word anxious or worry means to be pulled in different directions. And that's what happens when you're worried or when you're anxious. You're getting pulled all over the place. You ever felt like that before? You ever felt like you got somebody pulling a leg, pulling your legs and pulling your arms and you're like, you're getting twisted into a pretzel by all sorts of people and things and circumstances? That's what worry does to you. Our hopes are pulled in one direction. Our fears get pulled in the opposite direction. And you know what the result is? Nothing good. <laughs> Nothing good comes from that. You, you, you end up getting pulled apart. It's interesting. The old English Roots, from which we get our word worry, means to strangle. It means to strangle. That's what worry does. It strangles you. If you've ever really worried, you know how, how worry strangles you. In fact, worry has definite physical consequences. It's been proven that worry can cause headaches. Worry causes neck pains, ulcers. It can cause back pain. It, it can do a number of things to us. Worry affects our thinking. Worry can even affect your digestion, and it can even affect your coordination. It can affect the way you play sports, the way you work, the way you live. There's good reason why Jesus commanded us in Matthew 6, don't worry. Instead, trust in God. Well, from the spiritual point of view, worry is wrong thinking, wrong feeling about our circumstances or people, or things. Somebody said that worry's the greatest thief of joy. Worry's the greatest thief of joy. However, it's not enough for us just 
to, to come up to ourselves and tell ourselves, hey, quit worrying. That's not going to necessarily work. Because there, there's something you need to understand. Worry is not an outside thing. Worry is inside you. And so it takes more than just good intentions to get the victory. And so the antidote to worry is found in verse 7. Look at verse 7. The antidote, the the medicine, the solution to your sin of worry is found in verse 7. It says that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. My friends, that's the protection you need. So, when you understand verse 7, you've got to ask the question, why worry? Why worry? If we're to conquer worry, we have to believe who God is. We have to believe what He has said about Himself. And so let's look at some things here in chapter 4 about God's protection. And as you look at these, let, let this medicine of God's Word just wash over your soul and take the worry away. Okay? First of all, notice that God gives peace. God is the one who gives peace. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved, my, my brothers whom I love and long for, my crown and joy, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, in supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And if you do that, what's going to happen? Look at verse 7. The result is that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. We see that God gives peace. And number two, we'll see that God gives power. God gives power. Look at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. So Paul realized that God gave him power. He could do nothing without Him. But God also gives provision. So God gives peace, He gives power, and He gives provision. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, Paul says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. 
And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul had joy because he was trusting in God's protection. Let me just give you a few suggestions here as we think about the book of Philippians. One of the ways you can do this is kind of by reiterating the main points. How does joy come? Well, you focus on the gospel. Focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Be humble. Don't be proud. Don't be arrogant. Don't focus on yourself. Get your eyes off yourself. The problem is when your eyes on your on yourself, you're going to get discouraged. And look to the one who is encouraging. Know Christ. And then look to God for protection. But here's a few other points to just quickly consider that might be of help to you. Here's a few suggestions. Number one, surrender your mind to the Lord. Every morning, every day, surrender your mind to the Lord. That's where the battle is going to take place. The joy is going to be stolen from you there in your mind. This is, by the way, the part of dedication in Romans 12. Romans 12 says you are to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It goes on in verse 2 to say, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By the renewal of your mind. And when you do that, you'll prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so, my friends, we must give God our bodies must give God our minds. We must give God our wills. All, all entire being of us given over to God. And that's something you need to do every day. Do it every day. Number two, let the Holy Spirit renew your mind through the Word of God. We're talking about the Bible here. Let the, let the Bible, the Scriptures, the Word of God wash over you continually. Let, let, a systematic reading of the Bible is a must if you and I are going to have victory in our lives. Because this world is going to continually throw stuff at you and try to form you into its own mold. Romans 12.2 says you're not to be conformed to the world. And so the only way you're going to be transformed and have this renewing of your mind taking place is through God's Word. You've got to keep doing that over and over and over. And number three, as you pray, ask God to give you that day the mind of Christ. Did you notice what Paul said in Philippians 2.5? Let this mind of Christ be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And so as you're contemplating your day's schedule, whatever that looks like, be sure to put on the whole armor of God. By the way, did you notice the armor of God in Ephesians 6 has everything to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ? You've got to put the whole thing on. The whole thing. Don't leave anything off, because then that becomes the weak point. 
Put on the whole armor of God so nothing can rob you of the joy that God wants you to have. And number four, during the day, mind your mind. (laughs) Mind your mind. In other words, guard your mind. If you find yourself losing this peace and this joy, you got to stop. The problem is you're you're thinking about the wrong content. When you're when that's happening, you're thinking about the wrong content. You got to stop, take inventory, see what the problem is, and then look to the solution. And so if you've discovered that you have sinned and and sin is hindering this fellowship between you and God, you got to stop, deal with that sin before God. Recognize that there is a a faithful God, a just God who is willing and able to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then go back and remedy your mistake. And number five, guard the doors of your mind. Guard the doors of your mind. Remember Paul's admonition here in chapter 4, verse 8, because he says, whatever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, he says, think on those things. Again, notice it's content of the thoughts is vitally important there. And so when an unkind or an impure thought enters your mind, the last thing you want to do is cultivate that. The last thing you want to do is give that everything it needs to grow. Don't let it bear roots. If you cultivate it, it will take root, it will grow, and it will ultimately rob you of joy. The Bible says sometimes Satan is going to throw fiery darts at us. You know, throw fiery darts. That sometimes he's going to use other people even to throw these fiery darts at us. People can rob us of joy. One of the best ways to defeat the wrong kinds of thoughts is you replace the wrong kinds of thoughts with the right thoughts. Meditate on the Scripture. Meditate on the right content. And last, you've heard this before, when you take the word joy and you, you add a word to each of those letters, you find the right priority brings joy. Here's what it is. Joy comes by putting Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. If you try to find happiness, joy, by putting yourself first, it will never, never happen, my friends. So put Jesus first, live for Him and His kingdom and His cause, and then, you know what Matthew 6, verse 33 says? All these things will be added unto you. God will take care of your needs when you put Him first. Joy comes by putting Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. May God enable us to live out some of these suggestions so that we would focus on the gospel, that we would be humble, that we would know Christ, and we would look to Him for our protection. May God enable us to do that. Let's pray.